Senator Booker. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Your Honor. Hi, Senator. Uh, so I uh, spoke yesterday, and, and I appreciate the attention which you gave me talking about how this is not a normal time. And I want to reiterate that uh, one more time as cogently as I can, because this is um, something like we've just never seen before in the history of the United States. Uh, we're not just uh, days away from Election Day, but people are actually voting right now. Uh, close to a million people in my state have already voted, and about 10 million people uh, voted nationally. The only other time a Supreme Court nomination hearing happened this close to an election was, as you probably know, was under President Lincoln, uh, who declined to offer a, a nomination before the election. But we are in the midst of an ongoing election right now at a very contentious time in our democracy. It's probably not normal also because uh, people are already speaking in this election, and it seems like we are rushing through this process when many of my colleagues on this committee said just four years ago uh, that we should not proceed to fill a vacancy that opened 269 days before an election. And the words of some of my colleagues, including uh, the chairman, was to use our words against us. We would not do exactly what we're doing right now. It's also not normal, clearly, uh, because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And we have tens of thousands of new COVID infections every single day. Widespread food insecurity, like we haven't seen these kind of food lines in my lifetime, I don't think. People across our country are struggling. And unfortunately, we see that we are right now not dealing with this crisis. We are instead uh, literally having closed the Senate virtually. And the only proceedings that are being allowed to go forward are not the issues of helping people who are struggling, but dealing with this. And it's not normal that we have a president who has repeatedly attacked the legitimacy of our institutions. So much so, and I've never seen something like this in my lifetime, that his former cabinet members, his former chief of staff, all talk about the danger he represents to uh, the country we all love. In fact, probably one of the most respected person on both sides of the aisle, General Mattis, who served as our Secretary of Defense, went as far as to say, a man who has been very reserved in his comments, that Donald Trump is a danger to our democracy. We are at a time that the legitimacy of our institutions are at stake. And it's not normal that the president would further cast a shadow over your nomination, as well as the independence of the court, by saying he would only nominate justices who would tear down Roe v. Wade, who would overturn ACA. And it's not normal amidst this all, and, and again, something that I find hard to believe that we're talking about, is that we have a president who cannot commit himself to the peaceful transfer of power. Now, in the light of this abnormality, most Americans think we should wait on your nomination. Uh, it's an illegitimate process. Most Americans think that we should wait. Today, and I, and I appreciate uh, you not following the news, but 90 of your fellow faculty members from Notre Dame wrote an open letter calling on you for the sake of our democracy. They didn't speak to whether you're right or left or your judicial philosophy or qualifications. They wrote an impassioned letter for the sake of our democracy. They publicly issued a statement asking that your nomination, that you pull yourself, withdraw from this nomination process and have it be halted until after the November election. This is not normal. And again, the overwhelming majority of Americans want to wait, but my colleagues here are not listening. And so I'm going to ask you some questions that if you had told me five years ago that would be questions asked at a Supreme Court nomination hearing, I would have thought they wouldn't be possible. But unfortunately, 
I think they're necessary to ask you, and I hope that you'll give me direct answers. The first one, um, you've already spoken towards issues of racism and how you deplore it, but I, I want to just ask you very simply, and I, I imagine you'll give me a very short, resolute answer, um, but you condemn white supremacy, correct? Yes. Thank you. I'm glad to see that you said that. I wish our president uh, would say that so resolutely and unequivocally as well, but we are at a time that Americans are literally fearful because their president cannot do that in the resolute manner in which you did. I'm, I'm sorry that that question had to even be asked at this time. Here's another one. Do you believe that every president should make a commitment unequivocally and resolutely to the peaceful transfer of power? Well, Senator, that seems to me to be pulling me in a little bit into this question of whether the president has said that he would not peacefully leave office. And so to the extent that this is a political controversy right now, as a judge, I want to stay out of it and I don't want to express a view on. So judge, I, I appreciate you what you've said about respecting our founding fathers, about the originalism. It's remarkable that we're at a place right now that this is becoming a question and a topic, but I'm asking you in light of our founding fathers, in light of our traditions, in light that everyone who serves in that office has sworn an oath where they, quote, swear to preserve and protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, I'm just asking you, should a president commit themselves, like our, our founding fathers, I think, have a clear intention, like the grace that George Washington showed to the peaceful transfer of power, is that something that presidents should be able to do? Well, one of the beauties of America from the beginning of the Republic is that we have had peaceful transfers of power and that disappointed voters have accepted the new leaders that come into office. And that's not true in every country. And I think it is part of the genius of our Constitution and the good faith and goodwill of the American people that we haven't had the situations that have arisen in so many other countries where there have been, um, where those issues have been present. Thank you, Your Honor. Do you think that the president has the power to pardon himself for any past or future crimes he, have me, me, he may have committed against the United States of America? Well, Senator Booker, that would be a legal question. That would be a constitutional question. And so in keeping with my obligation not to give hints, previews, or forecasts of how I would resolve the case, that's not one that I can answer. Well, I, I think I agree with you that it is an issue right now, something I never thought would be an issue before, but it is an issue that our president may intend to pardon himself for future crimes or past crimes. If a president is personally responsible for several hundred million dollars in debt while he's in office, potentially to foreign entities, do you think he has a responsibility to disclose who his lenders are, especially given the emoluments clause? Well, Senator, there's litigation about the Emoluments Clause. I think it was in the Fourth Circuit. I don't know where it stands, but that clearly is an issue that's being litigated, and, and one present in courts is not one on which I can offer an opinion. Thank you. I think it's disturbing that we're having this conversation. I think it's disturbing that we have a president that has brought what should be settled in the minds of most Americans. Presidents should reveal what their debts are especially if they're two foreign nations. Uh, presidents should not be able to 
pardon themselves for future crimes. Presidents should condemn white supremacy. Presidents should commit themselves to the peaceful transfer of power. Judge Barrett, you, you've seen uh, a lot of my colleagues and I put up pictures of, of people in this room and the stories we've told, and I've appreciated the, the way you've listened. Uh, it's not a stretch to understand why a lot of Americans are afraid right now. All we have to do is look at the statements uh, and actions of my Republican colleagues, the Republican Party platform, and the president who nominated you. And even some of your own words, which have been read by my previous colleagues around the Affordable Care Act. President Trump, who nominated you for this vacancy, has not only explicitly stated that the Supreme Court should overturn the Affordable Care Act, but he promised that he would nominate a judge who would, quote, do the right thing, unlike Bush's appointee, John Roberts, on Obamacare. The president has tried to do this legislatively. He's tried to do it administratively. He's failed time and time again, but he's promised over and over again to tear down the Affordable Care Act. Meanwhile, all of my Republican colleagues on this committee, except for one, has voted to overturn the Affordable Care Act because House and Senate Republicans have tried to do it 70 times. The one Republican who did not was an attorney general who joined 20 state attorney generals who sued to overturn the Affordable Care Act. You yourself said, and now I will quote you, that Justice, Chief Justice Roberts pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute. The same Chief Justice Roberts that Trump implied didn't do the right thing. And so, Judge Barrett, you, you have said that if you were on the court, you will hear and consider the arguments from both sides. I was actually very interested when you said that you would put your family members in the shoes of litigants on both sides. Given all that you've heard said over and over again about the intentions to tear away the Affordable Care Act, to end the Affordable Care Act, given what you've heard about the people who rely on it, given the commitment, you know, that President Trump's to said explicitly to only appoint judges who would overturn the ACA, is it unreasonable for people to fear putting yourself in the shoes of, of people? Is it unreasonable for the people that have been up here as in their pictures? Is it unreasonable for them to fear that the ACA would be overturned if you are confirmed to the court? Well, Senator, I want to stress to you, Senator Booker, as I've stressed to some of your colleagues today, that I am my own person. I, I, I'm independent under Article 3, and, you know, I don't take orders from the executive branch or the legislative branch. I, I understand that. I guess, may, can I restate my question? Because I don't think you are understanding it. Sure. I'm just asking you as an act of empathy, can you understand the fears that are exhibited by the people we put up? I, I don't, the two people I put up, Michelle and merit. I don't know what their political party is. I don't know if they're going to vote for me. I'm on the ballot. I don't know. I just know that they were people that wanted their voices to be heard because they are afraid right now and what your nomination represents. All I'm asking is, can you empathize with that? Can you understand that? Senator, I can certainly empathize with people who are struggling. I can empathize with people who lack health care. You know, one of the things that was so striking to me when we went to get our daughter Vivian from the orphanage in Haiti was the lack of access to basic things like antibiotics. And it just made me appreciate the fact that we had access to health care. So I can certainly empathize with all of that. And with respect to the ACA, you know, should I be confirmed? And, and as I've said, I would consider the issue of recusal a threshold question of law and whether to hear that case.
but should I be confirmed and should I sit and hear the case? As I assured you, I would consider all the arguments on both sides. And one of the important issues in that case is whether, even if the mandate has become unconstitutional since it was zeroed out, whether it would be consistent with the will of Congress for the whole act to fall, it's a statutory question, not a constitutional one, or whether the mandate could be severed out and the rest of the act stand. And so the task of every justice who hears this case will be to look at the structure of the statute and look at its text to determine whether it was the will of Congress and, when and, they passed the ACA. And Judge, I apologize, especially after the good behavior that was noted that we shouldn't be talking over each other. My no, time that's is, okay, Senator. My, my time is, is, is running quickly. Sure. Um, I, I guess I just, as a guy who um, looks at justices, uh, I was just asking you to, to express that you understand the fear that's in America right now because you heard story after story of people who don't know if they're going to be able to afford their health care, who don't know if they will be denied insurance coverage. And I'm going to move on because of the short time, but I was just asking you is can you understand the fear giving a president that has said that if they will put justice on there that will tear down the Affordable Care Act, thus taking away health care from millions of Americans. There is fear in our country right now. But I want to move now to earlier what Senator Durbin and you discussed. They asked about your views on racism and the role of courts in, assess in addressing racial justice. I was troubled that you said that racial justice and equality, I'll quote you, um, or how to tackle the issue of making it better, those things are policy questions. I think that that's the quote. Um, how to tackle the issue or of making it better, the racial injustice, um, those things are policy questions and not for the court. Um, the federal government's own data, and, and this is, I think you and I referenced this in our, in our private conversation, which I appreciate. Um, you, you said you were familiar with a lot of the data about the, the uh, discrimination within our criminal justice system. For example, the U.S. Sentencing Commission shows that prosecutors are more, this is a, the U.S. Sentencing Commission said that prosecutors are more likely to charge black defendants with offenses that carry harsh mandatory minimum sentences than similarly situated whites. Are you familiar with that, the U.S. Sentencing Commission? I'm not familiar with that particular statement. Does that surprise you? Um. I, I mean, I, I don't know, Senator Booker, that seems an odd thing for me to express an opinion out. As, as you I'm not asking I, you. These are facts. These are just facts. And as you and I, I'm not familiar with that study. As you and I discussed, I am aware that there is evidence and that there have been studies of systemic racism or implicit bias in the justice system. So I am aware of that issue. I, I was not aware. You, of you're aware of evidence that there is implicit racial bias. I am aware that there have been studies showing that implicit bias is present in many contexts, including in the criminal justice system. Okay. I'm just going to read some of these other statistics because I think they're really important. And this is independent data from the U.S. Sentencing Commission that black defendants, again, are compared with similarly situated white defendants who are subject to three-strike sentencing enhancements at a significant higher rate, which on average added 10 years to sentences. You're not familiar with that study? I'm not familiar with that study. Do, do, do such cases come before the Seventh Circuit? The, the three-strikes cases? Yes. Are you talking about the three strikes, the Prison Litigation Reform Act cases where they're struck out, or are you talking about- I'm asking cases in the criminal justice system that relate to racial bias, do they come before the court? 
So certainly we have discrimination cases. Certainly there are 1983 cases or Title VII cases. I would imagine so. And, 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 and in, those, in your research for those cases, you familiarize yourself with a lot of the data on the discrimination within the system? That, you know, we familiarize ourselves with the arguments the parties make and the information that they put in the record. And in some cases, uh, I have had parties submit or it's submitted in the district court technically and then made part of the record. And, and so I just want to be clear. Do you believe that there is, in fact, implicit racial bias in the criminal justice system? Well, Which is just a yes or no question. Do you believe, in fact, that there is implicit racial bias in the criminal justice system? Senator, it would be hard to imagine a system, a criminal justice system as big as ours, not having any implicit bias in it. So is that a yes? Senator, yes, I think that in our large criminal justice system, it would be inconceivable that there wasn't some implicit bias. Okay. Uh, over the last two years, about 121 of President Trump's judicial nominees to the federal court have said unequivocally that there is implicit racial bias within the justice system. Um, quite clearly. Um, I'd like to turn to an opinion you wrote last year about race discrimination, Smith versus Illinois Department of Transportation. The case involved an African-American uh, traffic patrol officer who had been fired from the Illinois Department of Transportation. This employee claimed that he had been subjected to hostile work environment uh, and that the supervisor called him the N-word. Uh, but you ruled that the employee had failed to make the case that he had been fired in retaliation for his complaints about race discrimination. And now you acknowledged that, quote, and I'm, I'm, you, and I'm going to quote you now, the N-word is an egregious racial epithet. But you went on to insist that the employee couldn't, quote, win simply by proving that the N-word was uttered at them and that he failed to show that, the, that his supervisor's use of the N-word against him quote, altered the conditions of his employment and created a hostile or abusive working environment. And you said that even based on his own subjective experience, this black employee had, quote, no evidence that his supervisors were lashing out at him because he was black. I'm very surprised to, to have to make this point at all, but even a staunch conservative like Justice Kavanaugh, in my questioning of him, spoke to the obvious harm here in a way that you don't seem to. He wrote in a court of appeals case that, quote, being called the N-word by a supervisor suffices by itself to establish a racially hostile work environment. And you disagreed with that. Why do you believe that the law recognizes the harm that is afflicted on a black person in this country when they have called that word by their work supervisor, or by anyone really for that matter, and the and all the history dredged up in that word, centuries of harm, why, why do you believe differently than Justice Kavanaugh? Well, Senator Booker, that opinion does not take a position different than Justice Kavanaugh. It expressly and wrote, was written very carefully to leave open the possibility that one use of that word would be sufficient to make out a hostile work environment claim. The problem was that in that case, the evidence that the plaintiff had relied on to establish the hostile work environment involved other, you know, he was driving the wrong way down a ramp and then expletives were used, not the N-word. Um, and the N-word was used after his termination had already begun. And he didn't argue under clear Supreme Court precedent, I didn't make up the objective subject development. Under clear Supreme Court precedent, both are required and he didn't say that it altered the terms of, that's not how he pled or made his case. And it was a unanimous panel decision. 
and, and forgive me if I'm reading your, this case wrong, but you're saying to me he was not claiming that he had a hostile work environment and, and, that, and that it is in the fact pattern that this supervisor called him the N-word um, and, and, and that does not constitute a hostile work environment in the way that Justice Kavanaugh said clearly that it does? No, Senator, I think you're mischaracterizing what I said with all respect. In that opinion, the evidence that he introduced to show the hostile work environment was the use of expletives when he drove the wrong way down. He was, he was hired to be a safety driver for the Illinois Department of Transportation, and he based his hostile work environment claim on the use of expletives at him based on poor work performance. That was what he relied upon, and then his termination proceedings had begun. He didn't tie the use of the N-word into the evidence that he introduced for his hostile work environment claim. And so as a panel, we were constrained to decide based on the case the plaintiff had presented before us. So the panel very carefully wrote the opinion to make clear that it was possible for one use of the N-word to be enough to establish a hostile work environment claim if it were pled that way. I'm going to turn to the AutoZone case you discussed earlier with Senator Feinstein. The initial panel of three judges that examined the case ruled against Kevin Stuckey. You were not a part of that initial panel, but you did have an opportunity to vote on whether to hear the case before the entire court. You had an opportunity to affirm the bedrock principle enshrined in Brown versus Board of Education uh, about separate but equal, really to say that separate is inherently unequal but you voted no. You didn't think the full court needed to examine this deliberate segregation of employees by race. Uh, but the judges on the court disagreed with you. In fact, three judges explained, uh, we know that, quote, deliberate racial segregation by its very nature has an adverse effect on the people subjected to it. On one of the essential teachings of, of Brown versus Board of Education, which I know you're familiar with, is, is that idea of separate being inherently unequal. Um, what? Why did you think that these separate but equal facilities were lawful, or why didn't you see this as a practice that was worthy of closer scrutiny? Um, Senator, as I said earlier to Senator, Senator Feinstein, I did not make a merits decision on that case, and I wasn't on the initial panel. The calculation of whether to take a case on banc is different than a merits determination. So I wasn't reaching any decision about whether Title VII applied to that situation or not. Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure, I think it's 35 that governs on banc proceedings, sets out standards, and this case didn't create an intra-circuit conflict or an inter-circuit conflict. And so I didn't think it met Federal Rule of, all my vote means is that I didn't feel like it satisfied the elevated high standard for on banc review, not that I thought it was correct. There's a lot of deference to panels in my court. Right, but I mean, three judges disagreed with you, and these were judges appointed by Republican and Democrat presidents. They saw the case about separate and equal really compelling. They thought the issue deserved closer scrutiny, and you had an opportunity to join them, but you didn't. You referred earlier to the problem of implicit racial bias in our system, this idea that despite the color of her skin, people can get a hearing, people can get justice. And this denial um, uh, seems to me that you disagree with the, the, the prioritization, at least, of your uh, three colleagues. Um, Senator, eight of my colleagues chose not to take the case on banc. And the on banc process is a different one than the merits decision-making process. To decide that case on the merits and know whether I would come out the same way, I would have had to participate in it and read the briefs and hear the arguments. And so and the three justices were wrong, then you disagree with your colleagues? 
The three judges who dissented, my three colleagues whom I respect very much, thought that it met the standard for en banc review. That's a different question than the merits, and so I did disagree with them about whether to take it en banc. So I was within the group of eight colleagues that decided that maybe that would be an issue we could take up in the future, but not to disturb the panel decision then. But Thank that's you. not a merits determination. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, moving quickly, um, Judge Barrett, uh, five years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution protects the rights of same-sex couples to marry. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a, a Burgerfall case, which has been discussed today. The court declared the Constitution grants LGBTQ Americans equal dignity in the eyes of the law. Hundreds of thousands of couples have built their lives on this decision. I've married some of them myself. On that day five years ago, the court fulfilled really that ideal of equal justice under law. Um, and yet now, the same-sex marriage is legal. We've seen efforts to try to undermine that decision. Justice Ginsburg wrote about legal rules that would, quote, create two kinds of marriage, full marriage and skim milk marriage. I firmly believe that our laws shouldn't allow discrimination against people on the basis of who they are. I have a number of questions on this topic, if I can get through them, but I wanted to offer you a, a further opportunity to address the issue that I don't think you got to fully address that my colleague brought up. When you did use the term sexual preference earlier today, rather than sexual orientation. Is there a difference and what is it? Senator, I really, in using that word, did not mean to imply that I think that, you know, um, that it's a matter, not a matter of, that it's not an immutable characteristic or that it's solely a matter of preference. I honestly did not mean any offense or to make any statement by that. But by what you just said, you understand about that immutable characteristic. In other words, that one's uh, sexuality is not a preference, it is, who they are. Is that what you're saying? Senator, I'm saying I was not trying to make any comment on it. I fully respect all the rights of the LGBT community. Obergefell is an important precedent of the court. I reject any kind of discrimination on any sort of basis. So you, you, you say Obergefell is the decision. Well, what about your two colleagues? Excuse me, forgive me. What about uh, Alito and Thomas who have said uh, that the court has created a problem that only it can fix. They, they clearly don't see that as a precedent worth following. You, you just said Obergefell is a precedent. I said Obergefell, of course, Obergefell is, an, is a precedent. It is an important precedent. As you pointed out, there are reliance interests now on Obergefell as to why Justices Alito and Thomas have called for its overruling in, in the, the recent opinion that they issued. I can't really speak to- They call it a problem. Do you know what they're referring to? Well, Senator Booker, I, I don't know what Justices Thomas and Alito were thinking that you'd have to ask them. So we're now seeing cases where gay and lesbian Americans are being denied equal access to social security survivors' benefits. One same-sex couple in Arizona was together for 43 years, got married, but one of them died six months later, and now the surviving spouse is being denied benefits uh, because they weren't married long enough after 43 years uh, together in love. Does this violate the, uh, the rule of equal treatment that the Supreme Court has laid down? Well, in Obergefell, could you repeat the, the facts of this? They were, they, were, they were together for 43 years. The law changed and allowed them to marry. They married. One died soon after. And they're being denied survivor benefits because they weren't married long enough because the law wrongfully denied them that equality. Um, so that would be a legal question that would have to come up and be decided in the context of a real case. I mean, it's plain that Obergefell recognizes the full right of same-sex couples to marry, but the question of what are the implications of that for benefits would be something that would come up with the, before so, a court later. But so. there are some precedents. Maybe I can ask a different sure. question. 
Can a hairdresser refuse to serve an interracial couple's wedding because they disapprove of interracial marriages? Well, Loving versus Virginia follows directly from Brown, and it makes unconstitutional any attempt to prohibit or forbid interracial marriage. Um, could they refuse to serve a black couple's wedding? Could a baker or a florist refuse to... Uh, Title VII prohibits any sort of discrimination on the basis of race by places of public accommodation. How, how about an interfaith wedding? Um, well, Senator, I feel like you're taking me down a road of hypotheticals that is going to get me into trouble here because, as you know, I can't opine on how cases would be resolved. And I've said that whether they're easy questions or hard questions, I can't do that. So I'm not the lawyer that you are, but you seem to honor the precedents that are enough to protect discrimination against African-Americans, interracial couples, but you stop on saying that unequivocally about um, people stopping on religious discrimination or the, against a Muslim couple's wedding or an interfaith wedding? Well, Senator, I think you know what Title VII says, as I'm sure you know, is Title VII prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, on the basis of sex. Um, I, I, all I can do is say refer to the statute, but of course, as to whether there would be evidence to show or whether any particular encounter between a customer and a florist or a baker violated Title VII, that would be a case that would have to come up, you know, as I discussed with Senator Sass, with real litigants litigated on a full record. So I, you're asking a series of hypotheticals. And, and so I'm assuming that you will not respond, uh, or, or for the same reasons you've uttered before, you will not respond about whether a florist can refuse to serve a same-sex couple. Well, I, it sounds like you're on your way to talking about Masterpiece Cake Shop and some of the cases that are very hotly contested and winding their way through the courts. And so I want to make sure that I'm not in a position where I'm eliciting any views that would bear on litigation that's very active. Well, and I, and I guess you maybe can understand if we go back to... Um, the, the question that both I and, and Senator Hirono asked you about um, what, what you said you, you didn't mean to offend about whether it's a choice or not. These are about are they immutable characteristics of an individual like their race. Um, um, I just uh, want to just close by saying the, the story of um, some folks in my home community of New Jersey, Emily, Sonessa, and Jan Moore. They've been together for 51 years. They've raised three children. At last count, and I think that that's a good way of putting it, uh, they have 18 grandchildren and 20 great-grandchildren. You know how families are. Mm -hmm. uh, but for a long time, they had to keep their relationship and their love a secret. Finally, one same-sex marriage, when, once same-sex marriage became legal, they got married. And thanks to the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell, they can now enjoy their full rights. Judge Barrett, uh, you're asking the United States Senate to agree to have you replace Justice Ginsburg, which would tilt the balance of the court further to the right. Remember that it was Justice Ginsburg who warned against full marriage for some couples and skim milk marriage for others. Like so many couples in my state of New Jersey and around the country, Emily Jan are worried about what might happen if the Supreme Court starts to peel back some of their hard-fought rights. They believe that their love should be valued by their government and equally as a love of any other people. And they believe a lot of the rights that they now enjoy, which were denied in the past, to African-Americans even, to interracial couples. They believe that they should be able to preserve them. And so I, my time's expired. You've been very generous, and the, as has the chairman, in allowing me to go over. Uh, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to talk with you more tomorrow.